Now, last week we learned as Keith was praying of the focus on holiness in the Christian life and being prepared through self-controlled lives and through sober thinking. In verse 14 of the text that we looked at last week, we were reminded that we as Christians must be busy eliminating the things of this world that distract us from the holiness that God has called us to. And then, of course, in verses 15 and 16, we learn that we must engage in the holy habit of imitating our God and our Father in heaven and our Lord Jesus Christ because it is only through imitation that we can see the holiness that God has called us to. But now we come to verses 17 through 21. And we come to a point where Peter addresses what I would like to say is the danger of having an identity crisis. In our text, we're going to see that there are three things or three activities that will direct our life of holiness that God calls us to because he wants us as obedient children to be holy as he is holy. But how are we to do that? Today, our text is going to help us understand the ways we can pursue holiness and we can recognize that we are children of the King. So let's stand and let's read together 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, uh, and let's look at this together. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each, other's, each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Let's turn to God again. Father God, we come to you again. And Lord, as we open up your word, Father, I pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, to enlighten our hearts, to empower uh, our abilities uh, to serve you and to pursue this holiness that you've called us to. Father, I pray for those who have lived uh, this week struggling with their identity. Lord, knowing that they're Christians, but recognizing that their life and their activities and their practices Lord, may not look as Christian as it should be. Father, we know that this pursuit of holiness is not simply just doing the right things, but it's living the right way. It's having the right thoughts. It's pursuing the right things. And Lord, it's saying no to the things that you have said no to. So Father, I pray that you'd give us the power to do so. Father, I pray you'd speak through me as well, that I might encourage the hearts of the listener and might lead many back to a great and wonderful fellowship with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Like so many teenagers, my teenage life was a life of an identity crisis. Now, it started early on as the middle child of a set of parents that had forgotten who I was. That's what happens with middle children. The first one comes along, and they love that first one so very much. They, all the awe and all the splendor of that first child, you know, even though the kid's ugly, they love him because he's the only one they have. And then the cute middle one comes with all the great personality and all of that. But they're so tired of dealing with all the first insecurities and issues and struggles that the middle one, because he's so well put together and because he's got it all figured out, they leave him by himself. And then the third one comes. 
because they see the second one and they see how beautiful and how wonderful he is. And then they're like, we should do another one. We should have a third one. And if you know, a copy of an original is never as, as clear and, and that. And yet they call him the baby and they love on him and they care for him and they give him better Christmas gifts. And, and I'm almost done with my therapy. But, uh, but we have identity crisis. Well, kidding aside, my middle child life wasn't that bad, but my heart goes out to you middle children, and my middle son tells me all the time how rough he does, in fact, have it. But my identity crisis came at a, at a point of about 14 years of age. I had an older brother uh, that I idolized. He was popular. He was good-looking. He had a great personality. He was well-liked by almost everybody. And when my brother died at the age of almost 17, it threw my world into a massive identity crisis. I was a small, unpopular, little freshman, and my brother was the big senior, the big man on campus. And I remember all of the attention that I got. I remember people coming to me and saying, it's now time for you to fill his shoes. And I didn't know what that meant. The only thing I could think of is that they wanted me to be like my brother, to be Chris. And for a couple of years, man, I struggled with that. Who am I? And it seemed that any time Chris's name came up, people really wanted to spend time with me. When it came to Tim, not so very much. And so I began to pursue something that wasn't me, trying to be funny like my brother was funny, try to do the things that he did. And what God began to teach me through some wonderful mentors was that I don't need to be someone else. I just need to be who I am. That God had made me for a purpose. That God had a plan for me. And that through that purpose and through that plan, God had amazing things in store for Tim. Chris was in heaven. God would deal with him. God would, would love on him and take care of him. But what I needed to focus in on was not Chris or Joel or anyone else, but I needed to focus in on myself. Likewise, in the Christian life, many of us struggle with an identity crisis. Maybe not so much that we're following in the footsteps of our older brother, but many of us find ourselves in many ways living a double life. We want to live for Christ. We want to pursue Christ. And everything in our heart says that we desire to live like him and for him and, and have him live through us. But then we go out into this world. And the world and all of its temptations, and the world and all of its ways, and the world and, and all of its desires begin to creep in. And instead of living that life that we said we wanted to, we find ourselves living a very different life. Peter is announcing to the recipients of this letter that you and I, if we call ourselves Christians, we are holy. We have been made righteous. But we are also called to live differently than the ways of this world. We're called differently to live, to live differently than our neighbors and, and many of our friends. We're called to live by a, a code of conduct that is very different than the code of conduct in this world, than what we see on the television and through Hollywood. And what God is saying through his word is I want you not only to be holy in your position, but as he says in our text before uh, this one this morning, that he wants us to be holy in all that we do. You and I need help with our identity crisis. Many of us need to understand that what we have positionally is what we should have a part of our lives each and every day, and that is a holy pursuit towards God and his kingdom 
of righteousness. So what are we to do? Peter warns us this morning not to live life mindlessly, not to conform ourselves to the pattern of this world, but to see beyond the temporal to the eternal. And in doing so that we might see God's holiness not only in his life, in his being, but see it also reflected in us. To do that, there are three things that we must do. Number one, we must approach God with reverence. We must approach God with reverence. If you want to follow along, there's a sermon insert in your bulletins this morning. And our first point is approach God with reverence. Throughout the scriptures, we are given a working paradox that I believe comes most clearly in verse 17. Notice the text this morning. It says, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Let's stop there for a moment. There is a theological paradox that we see in Scripture. On the one side of it, we have what we call the transcendence of God. Transcendence has to do with his sovereignty. And it's a theological term that means that God is above everything, he is greater than anything, and he is distinct from all that he has made. In essence, he transcends it. He's far above it. He is far greater than it. And we see this throughout Scripture. Paul, the Apostle Paul, says in Ephesians 4, 6, that we have one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Psalm 97, Psalm 97, 9 says, For you, O Lord, are the most high God over all the earth. You are exalted far above all God's little g. And then who can forget Isaiah's words when God says, For your thoughts are not my thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. All of Scripture, all of these Scriptures remind us that God is great, and God is grand, and He is far above anything that is seen or unseen, and He is like nothing that we could ever fully know or describe. He's greater than that. He's far more awesome than that. That is his transcendence. We see this transcendence when we see God as our creator who out of nothing created something. No one else can do that. Everything that you and I create is creating something out of something. God, who is transcendent, creates out of nothing something. Out of nothing he created all that is seen, all that is heard, and all that is touched in our world and in our universe. But we also see this transcendence when we hear passages that speak of our God as judge, as one who stands and reigns supreme over all of his creation, who now looks at his creation and begins to judge them according to his righteousness and goodness. But there's a second part of that paradox. So we have the transcendence of God, but we also have what we call the eminence, eminence of God. It's a theological term that reminds us that God is the God who draws near to us, who longs for a relationship with us. The Bible speaks of a God who loves his people as a hen loves its chicks, as a husband who loves his bride, as a father in our text this morning who loves his children. And yet within this we have God who is judge, 
but God who is Father, God who is way above us and far beyond us, and a God who draws near to us. Here is the great paradox of our God. The God who is great and far above us is the God who comes close and draws near to you. Now, nowhere in Scripture do I believe do we see this paradox come together greater than in verse 17. Notice there are two thoughts that I have this morning for us with regards to this verse. Number one, we can approach God because he invites us. We can approach God because he invites us. Notice the text again that Peter starts out with the verse that comes with a conditional clause. And if you call on. Now let's stop there for a moment because that may ask some question as to the word if. It's a conditional clause in the Greek and maybe even better translated would be since you call on God your Father or in light of you calling him Father or in view of, him, of you calling him Father. The idea here is of a child who continually is calling out to his father, not in a nagging or bothersome way, but in a very loving way, longing for his father to engage with him. Now, when I come home uh, each day, I am overjoyed, and I know these days are, are going to come quickly to an end because I see it with my two older sons. When I walk into the house, they don't move. When I say, hey, kids, how are you? Hey, Dad. <laughs> okay? That's what I get out of the uh, almost 10-year-old and 7-year-old. But I love my 4-year-olds because when I come into the house, I don't care what kind of day I've had, Luke comes running, and he yells at the top of his voice, Daddy's home. Come here, Dad. I want to tell you about my day. Hey, Dad, you know what we did? Hey, Dad, you know what we saw? Hey, Dad, you know what I got to do at preschool? This is the picture that Peter is giving us about how we can approach our dad, how we can approach our Father who is in heaven. Now, this isn't the first time Peter hasn't done something new because the Bible, especially the New Testament, are filled with references of what Peter's talking about, that we can approach the God of the universe and call him Father. Jesus reminds us of this. When Jesus is teaching his disciples that way they should pray, he says we should start out our prayer, our Father who art in heaven. We see that later on in the text in Romans chapter 8, that Paul says that in our crying out and in our yearning for God to speak to us that we can cry out to him Abba Father which means daddy daddy we learn in first John chapter 3 verse 1 that we have a God and a father in heaven who loves us first John 3 1 says oh what great love the father has lavished on us that you and I could become children of God Peter is announcing what he himself has come to know, that the God of the universe is a God who desires for us to draw near to him. Now here in 1 Peter, Peter uses the word epikaleomai. The word epikaleomai is the word to call on. In verse 17, it describes people, saints, who have a habitual practice of calling upon their father as one who would appeal to an earthly father. Now, I know some of us may have had some real terrible upbringings. And many times what will happen is, is we will get the picture of God the Father. Uh, we will get our picture of our own father. And if our father was a lousy father, if he was a sinful father, then we begin to look at God that way. 
Well, the wonderful thing that I can have is that I have, a, I have a great father. I have a father that I love to talk to. It's almost not a day goes by that we don't have discussions about different things. And I love the ability that I have to call upon my dad, to ask him anything, to hear his encouraging words and all of that. And I want you to know, if you didn't have a dad like that, you do. His name is God. And he's the Father, and he is the one who has created you, and he loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life, and he desires to engage with you on a continual basis. This God that we have is our Father. And here's the thing. He calls us his children, and what he longs for is us to call upon him. Some of us have teenagers, and I pray for you often. And one of the things that you're concerned about is that your kids don't like talking to you. They are too cool for that. They'll learn. They'll learn that it's not uncool to talk with your parents. But they don't want to talk. Can I tell you that God looks at us sometimes, and I think he looks at us as teenagers. Why does, the, why does Tim not want to talk to me? I totally know how to fix his problem. I totally know what he needs in his life, and yet he goes on like teenagers do, dying inside, struggling with all kinds of pain and sorrow, and instead of coming to our Father who has the answers, who has the wisdom, we hold it back for ourselves. God wants a bunch of little Lukes, little four-year-olds, who are filled with warmth and gladness in their hearts when they get a chance to talk to their God, they get a chance to talk to their Heavenly Father. What a privilege we have to go to God at any time. Our God in heaven is not a dad who sits and watches TV and says, hey, talk to me later, or who finds himself on the computer or the cell phone trying to get work done. God is not the type of dad who uh, gets filled with anger and puts it out on you for no apparent reason. The God we have is there for you. He loves you, and he wants to be involved in every fabric of your life. We have a great God. Folks, we have a great Father. Now, all right, when you begin to think that, wow, I've, I've got a great position, I've got a great opportunity, now if I've got this God who loves me, then you know what, maybe I can do whatever I want. If you think that your special relationship with God allows you special treatment, then beware. Look out. Notice what the text says. At the end of verse 17, it tells us, that we have a, a, a God who we can call out as Father, but notice who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Wait a minute. Now we go to that transcendence. We've really, and I'll tell you, our, the world and its churches love the love of God and the imminence of God and God who loves you and gives hugs and everything. But we forget that God is judge, that God is righteous that God is that disciplinarian father, the one who says, I've created rules and order in your life to protect you and to show my love and care for you. You just can't get away with anything. I told you of my father who loved me and cared for me. And one day when I was about 11 or 12 years old, I was working with my dad. And we were having a great time. And I was starting to feel like I wasn't just a little kid, but I was growing into some levels of adulthood. And my dad was giving me responsibilities on the way home uh, from a uh, catering event. My mouth got a little ahead of me. And instead of calling my dad, dad, I called him Bubba. And I said, hey, Bubba. And I thought it would be funny, and I thought my dad would like it. And he looked at me, and he turned very sternly. You've got to remember, my dad's a Middle Eastern father. He said, I'm not your Bubba. 
I'm your dad. Treat me with some respect. What we begin to do is when we have a warm and cozy relationship with God, we begin to forget that he's God. That he isn't just our buddy or our pal. We've done this so very often in our American society that Jesus is just this buddy we've got, but Jesus is the one who lays down prophets and kings. He's the one who is standing on his throne or sitting on his throne and all of the myriad of angels are worshiping him. And here we are reminded that our God and Father in heaven is a God who's a judge. Not any kind of judge, but an impartial one. Peter reminds us that God's transcendence comes into play, that he will judge us. He will judge us for what we do. Now this impartiality is that he'll show no favoritism. Just because you're his child doesn't mean you're going to get away with things. Years ago, my mom was the uh, art lady that would come and, and each week show art pictures. And I thought, hey, I can get away with things. I know the art lady. And I'll never forget how quick the whiplash hit me when I thought I could get away with saying things during her presentation. She said, get out of here. Go to the principal's office. I was like, Mom? You can't do that. And some of us think that because we're Christians, we can turn the love relationship that we have with God into a license for sin. God says the following of unbelievers and believers alike. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. That God will oppose the proud and that it is a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. These words are true for us as they are unbelievers. A simple reading of the text shows us that God uses this hand of discipline on his children. So here we have this two-sided character of God. And he isn't 80% love and 20% justice, nor is he 70% justice and 30% love. He is unified in his attributes. So as much as he loves is as much as he judges, and as much as he judges is as much as he loves. They're in perfect unity with one another. Now the text tells us that we are to conduct our lives with fear. Now that sounds scary. I like what F.B. Meyer says, follow along with me as we see this, because we see we have to be, go back for a moment, I missed the point here, just so you guys get that. We are to be reverent because he's the impartial judge. Okay, so that's what we've been talking about. Go ahead and flip the page. How do we bring this into balance? F.B. Meyer says, what a blessed thought to give us encouragement in our praying. Faith that the answer is sure. And a sweet feeling of the nearness to God. To think that he is our father and we are his children. To think that he regards us as his children. And thus the objects of his special care and love. The holy soul of his child realizes this. And a great awe falls upon it and overshadows it. Now notice what he says. And an awe not born of fear, which hath torment, but of love. Go ahead. It passes the time of its sojourning in fear, not the fear of evil consequences to itself. But notice, the fear that we need to have with our God, our Father, and the God, the Judge, is that we don't want to grieve our Father of bringing a shadow over his face, of missing any measure of his love and nearness to him, which may be granted to the obedient child. Love casts out fear, but he says it also creates it. There is nothing fretful or depressing, but a tenderness of, he's speaking of us, the tenderness of our conscience, which dreads the tiniest cloud, such as might overshadow for a single moment 
the clear shining of the Father's face. So brief the days of our sojourning pass quickly on. And the vision of our homeland, speaking of heaven, calls to us and bids us to mend our pace and to walk wholly and truly for him. This is a motivation that God is our Father. We don't want to let him down. We don't want people to look at him and say, well, uh, he must not be that good of a father. Just look at his kids. No, we want him to, uh, the crowd to look at us and to say, wow, they've got a great dad. Look at how their dad has taught them. But we also recognize that we one day will be judged, and we are being judged and being disciplined each and every day so that God can make us more like his son. That's step one in this pursuit of holiness. It's step one to our identity that we are children of our God, our Father and Judge. Now notice the second thing this morning is that we must stand in awe of our rescue. We must stand in awe of our rescue. Now that we've had our relationship with our Father clarified and now that we know how to approach Him, that it involves reverence and it involves fear, but yet we can recognize that we can engage with Him as Father, we must now look at the painstaking events that were undertaken for our behalf. Notice with me verses 18 through 20. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your father, forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Now let's stop there for a moment. Not only are we to stand in fear and reverence before God, but there should be an utter astonishment of what God has done for you and I. The text tells us we were ransomed. The idea here would literally mean we were rescued, but even rescued isn't enough. The, one other translation uses the idea that we were redeemed. And again, a good synonym, but not a full one. And so let's stick with this idea of ransom for a moment. The word ransom is from the Greek word latro. It means setting a captor, I'm sorry, a captive free from its captors, but having to do so through a form of a payment. And so we hear about this many times. A hostage is taken and there is a ransom that is set. You will have your family back if you give me $1 million. And then the transfer takes place. The ransom has been done. It has been given. There is an exchange from one to another for the freedom of still another. Now the Roman Empire during Peter's time would have an estimated six million slaves. And buying and selling was a major business as it was a couple hundred years ago here in the United States. So if you were a person who had a loved one or a friend who was enslaved, you had the opportunity to set them free but to do so, you would have to go and pay the captor, to pay the slave owner a ransom price, a redemption price, which would allow your friend or loved one to be granted freedom. This is what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. This is why we can call on our God in heaven as our Father, because he's ransomed us. We are no longer slaves held hostage to sin, but we are now children of the King. We are enjoying all the benefits and all the blessings of his royalty. But the question is, why did we need to be ransomed in the first place? Verse 18 tells us that we had to be ransomed from the futile thinking inherited from our forefathers. That word futile is the Greek word meteos, 
Mateos is a life, and listen to this, is a life that is vain, empty, devoid of force, lacking in content. Let me tell you some more about this life. It's non-productive, useless, dead, fruitless, aimless, of, of no real lasting value. This adjective describes an ineffectual attempt to do something or an unsuccessful effort to attain something that one desires. It is a picture of utter futility. And what God's Word is telling us is this is how we lived. We lived with futile thinking and futile living. Mateos emphasizes an aimlessness of leading to no object or end and thus is used to describe all false gods and all false ways of, tr of living. What it is is a picture of the life that instead of choosing God, chooses to chase after the wind. And while you may chase after the wind and you may enjoy all of the prestige and all the power and all of the possessions and all of the pleasure of this world, the Bible says, what does it gain a man who gains the entire world but in the end loses his soul? What does it gain to have 70 years of fun and uh, all kinds of great reverie and then at the end of your day, here on earth to spend eternity in a place called hell. That's futile living. This mindset and this ignorance has been the hallmark of every man, woman, and child since the fall in the garden. When Adam and Eve, our earthly parents, chose selfishness and pride over obeying God. And we do that. Think about the first words that we hear many times out of our own children's mouth is the word no. I don't want to do it your way, mom and dad. I know I'm only two years old. I know I've never spent a day in school. I've never worked a minute of my life. But I know how to live my life better than you do. And we do that, and we sit there and look at our kids and say, oh, how ignorant can you be that you would argue with a parent, and yet that is exactly what we do with our God. We think we are the ones who should be in charge. We think we know which ways are right. And sadly, we learn that this isn't something we learn, but it's something we're born with. David says in the Psalms that we are born in our mother's womb in iniquity and sin. And it's in our mother's womb that we carry this inherited sin. We call it the original sin that imprints upon our lives an ignorance and a futility of the way we pursue life and everything that we do. Now notice, this is why we would need to be ransomed. And it would come at a high price. Notice the immense price that was paid. So we have the inherited problem with sin and the immense price that needed to be paid. Now notice, what would it cost to ransom people back to himself? Well, let's see what it wouldn't take or what couldn't pay the price. Peter says that perishable things such as silver and gold didn't make it. They wouldn't be able to take care of it. These metals are what make man great in our world and in our economy today. But it does nothing in the economy of our salvation. The word perishable there means something that is subject to corruption, rotting, withering, decay, or decomposition. The idea here is that silver and gold are things that are short-lived, that have a brief life and lack great significance. Well, they are things that would free a slave from his temporal bondage. They could never hold the power to release a person from their sin. So what would it take? Notice what Peter says. The precious blood of a lamb. But not only any ordinary lamb, 
but one without blemish or defect. But you couldn't find this lamb at any old, uh, you know, lambs are us, okay? You couldn't find it at lamb marts. You couldn't find it by any old shepherd's pen. But it would take the precious, non-blemished, non-defected blood of Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Now I want to focus in on a key word in the text, and that is the word precious. He says that it is the precious blood of Christ. That word precious is the Greek word timios. And this word describes that which is of utter value, that which is highly prized and desirable, that is, that is costly. It was spoken of things that had no earthly value whatsoever because they were of infinite worth. This is what God says about the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. His blood is so precious. Now you take that uh, whole idea that is without value and all of that, and then you take it up a notch, because in the Greek language, when you put the word precious before blood, the preceding adjective makes it of even greater worth. And so what God is saying to us, and what Peter is articulating to us, is that the blood that was shed for us was of such great value, one commentator put it this way, that the value of all the precious stones and all of the money that is in this world would be but utter rubbish in contrast to one Savior's, or one, our Savior's one drop of blood that was shed for us. This is what God did to pay for our redemption. But when did it come to pass? Notice Peter continues. And he says that this was involving an incredible plan for his people. So here we are in our sin. God sends his son Jesus to die for us, to shed his precious blood for us. And he does so a part of a great and grand plan. Notice verse 20. This plan was set about before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for our sake. Our redemption, understand this, and Jesus' role in it, was planned in the mind of God before the world was ever created. At some point in eternity past, the Trinity got together. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit got together, and in their holy community, they made a decision as to what would bring them greater glory and greater honor and greater praise and great renown. And it came to this, that in the mind of God, they would create a people who would have the ability to rebel against them, which they knew that that rebellion was coming, and that he would create us, and he would create us with the ability to rebel, and we would do so, and he would have the plan as to how to redeem us after that fall. At some point, somewhere in that discussion, Galatians 4.4 came into picture. Galatians 4.4 tells us that at, at, at a time when the time had fully come, God would send Jesus into the world to be born of a woman under the law that, we might re, that he might redeem those under the law. And so somewhere, and I want you to put, wrap your minds around this, in eternity past, Jesus says to the Father, I will be the one who goes. I will be the one who will enter into humanity. I will be born of Mary. I will be born in Bethlehem. I will endure all the temptation, all of the fatigue, all of the trouble of being a human being. I will do so with utter perfection, Father, and I will do the will of us, the Trinity, 
by going to the cross and learning obedience and dying a death. And I will do so so that the drops of my blood might be imputed upon the uh, sinners and they will be made righteous. All of this was done. Now notice, it wasn't, well, I'll just go take care of those people. I'll take care of all billion of them or how many ever are in the family of God. But what God says is notice, all of this was done. He says, was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Back before the world was ever created, back before uh, your name was ever even thought of, back before your parents ever got together, and that may seem as far back as the world being created, whenever that took place, you go a couple chapters back farther than that, and before the foundations of the world, God was thinking about you. And God said, I loved him. And Tim's going to blow it. And Tim's going to be born in sin. And Tim's going to sin every day of his life. And Tim's going to shake his fists at me. But before the foundations of the world, before I was ever born, God says, I'm going to put my love on Tim and I'm going to make him my child. If you find yourself living life where nobody loves you and nobody cares for you, all you got to do is look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and recognize you were of great value even before you were born. You were of great value because God put his love upon you. It was for you. So this is what God planned. He planned that Jesus would endure all these things, all of the pain, all of the agony, all of the heartache, all of that on the cross was not just done for a group, it was done for you. It was done for me. And he was willing to do all this. He was willing to do this because we are his children. And if he's faithful to see through Jesus through all of that, then I might remind you that no matter what trials and tribulation and struggles you may be going through, that God is faithful to see you through that as well. So what do we do with all this? All of this leads to one final point. We have been motivated to understand that our identity is found in God, our Father. Our identity has been understood that we must live with fear and reverence because we have a judge who is impartial. Our identity has been set and established because you and I have had our sins taken care of by the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the question is, what must we do? And that is, our identity must involve an activity or an activeness in a faithful response. We have to be active. We can't just read this passage of Scripture and say, well, that's great and that's wonderful and nice, but I'm going to go back to living how I was living before. The whole point of our text this morning is to motivate us to holiness. We have a God who loves us as his children. We have a God who gave up his son to die for us. And as a result, it should produce in us a faithful response. But sadly, so many of us are struggling with this crisis of who we are. We hear what God has done, but we live like orphans. Go about trying to figure out our life on our own, trying to figure out how we'll take care of ourselves, how we'll make the ends meet, how we'll take care of our own spirituality. And as a result of that, we find ourselves in the world conforming ourselves to its thoughts and pursuits and temptations. But when we look deeply into the eyes of God, into the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we are able, as Peter will say later in this passage, that we shall taste and see that the Lord is good, it will inevitably lead us to holiness. 
it will lead us there. You cannot look at this passage and not be cut to the heart that something in us needs to change. So what needs to change? First of all, the way we live. The way we live. This text should change the way that we look at our lives. Peter tells us in verse 17 that Christians ought to conduct ourselves with fear. We learned last week that this word conduct or uh, conduct is Peter's, one of his favorite words. It's the word anastrepho. The idea here is that we will live our entire lives, every part of who we are, every detail of our life will be lived in reverent fear. Proverbs tells us that the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom is a fear of God. Not a he's scary and running away, but a reverence and an awe. Far too many of us live with the bumper sticker mentality that we live with no fear. And we need to recognize that yes, he's our father, but he's our judge. And a life of holiness is a life that recognizes that you and I one day will give an account for how we lived in the body. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready to stand before God and be able to listen to him in his righteousness say, tell me how you lived for Christ. Tell me how you showed your gratitude back to me for me doing all that I did for you. What did you do with your life? Did you live for me? Did you tell others about me? Did you give in a way that would show that my priorities were more important than your priorities? We must live differently and lives of holiness are lives that put themselves under the lordship of Christ. Therefore, let us as a people who know that we have a God and Father in heaven live as stewards of God's goodness. But even greater than the things that God has given us, we are recipients of God's utter grace and should make us all the more willing to give ourselves over, as Paul says, to the work of the Lord. Notice it should change the way we love. This text broke my heart this week because it shows me how little I love God. I don't love God like I need to. Think about this for a moment. How much might we love someone who gives us something great under the Christmas tree? That aunt that gives you that big check, you have a special relationship with her. You make sure you call her on her birthday because she's done something good for you. And yet, I show far more love and affection to human beings who do temporal things for me, as great as they are, than loving my Father, who loved me before the foundations of the world, who sent his Son, Jesus, to die in my place. And instead of allowing me to stay in my sin, he gave me the right to become his child. And how do I love him? I give him a Sunday a week. Every once in a while, I might open up the scriptures. Every once in a while, because times get tough, I might pray to him. Every once in a while, maybe around Thanksgiving, I might say thank you. How ungrateful you and I are when it comes to the God who has given us all that he has. We sang a song this morning. I hadn't looked and seen it, but I had written down these lyrics. and He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become his righteousness. He humbled himself and he carried the cross. Love so amazing. Have you recognized that this morning? That the love that God shows us is an amazing love and an amazing grace? This love is greater than anything 
that we could ever have had. And here's the thing. We can try to repay him, but aren't you glad that God says you don't have to repay? But what God says is if you love me, you'll obey my commands. What God wants is what I want as a father, that my children would obey me, that my children would live in fellowship with me. God wants as your loving father for you to live for him and to live by his strength. And he says in doing so, we love him, and that's all he asks. Finally, we see that it changes the way we lean. What I mean by that is that it changes the way our reliance is found, our hope is found, our faith is found. Verse 21 says, so that your faith and your hope may be in God. The reason why God does all this for us is so that we may put our faith and our trust in him. Peter is dealing with people who are struggling. There's persecution, there's pain, there's trials, there's tribulation. There's all kinds of struggles and all kinds of strife. They are strangers in a strange land. It sounds a little bit like the world of America. They found themselves in a world filled with trouble. And what God says is clear to his dear children. Lean on me, put your hope in me, not in the perishable things of this world, and let us as a people live in light of the great hymn writer's words who says this in closing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I do not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Can you say this morning, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand? Can you say that all other ground is sinking sand? God this morning is speaking to us, Village Bible Church, and he's saying, I want to be your dad, but I'm also the judge. And I want you to live lives of holiness. I want you to live lives of holiness because what it took to save you was of infinite cost in heaven's bank account. And because I love you, I want to see you live and lean on me. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and I thank you for your word this morning. And Father, I pray that amidst a morning where, Lord, we've, we've woken up, and Lord, maybe we were ill-prepared for a message of infinite truth, that, Lord, your spirit would guide us and bring back to our memory one or two things from this text this morning. Father, we're thankful that we can come before you. We can approach your throne of grace with confidence that you hear us and that you give us grace in our time of need. We need you every hour, Lord, we need you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would come continually to you, knowing that if we come lacking wisdom, you will give it without finding fault. Lord, I also pray that we would recognize, Lord, we would stand in awe of the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, on this side of heaven, we will never truly understand how you bankrupted, if you will, heaven, giving of your Son, that we might become rich. Lord, Jesus became poor. Lord, let us know that and understand that and experience that in a real way this week, that that kind of sacrifice would lead us to say no to sin and ungodliness and worldly lusts and to follow you. Love so amazing. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the cross. And thank you for the opportunity to be your children. Now, Lord, lead us out in this week into a world that 
that will bring us struggles, it will bring us pain, it will bring us great trouble. But Lord, we can take heart because our Father and our Savior in heaven has overcome the world. We love you, Jesus. Let us lean on you. Let us live for you in all that we do. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.